welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode is on hypernatremia. So we're going to be talking about elevated sodium levels. So this is a sodium that is above 145 milliequivalents per liter or millimoles per liter. A lot of times we're not really super concerned until we're looking in the mid-150s, closer to 160. Typically patients are symptomatic at this point. Now, the symptoms we tend to see are related to that elevated sodium. Now, let's think if we have an elevated sodium, remember water follows sodium. So if we're thinking in our intravascular space, if sodium is elevated, we're going to have decreased intracellular sodium concentrations because water is going to flow from the inside of cells, outside of cells. And so we tend to have cellular uh, shrinking. And because of that, we're going to then, it's actually going to be pulling water to try to ultimately change that concentration gradient, bring it back to a normal level. Now, because of this, this affects quite a few things. The biggest is neurological. And so the biggest concern we have is from a neurological standpoint, we tend to see our cells and our brains start to shrink over time. And we all see this early manifestations or confusion, but then it can really progress to seizure and then ultimately coma. From a muscular standpoint, though, a lot of times you're going to see this as either muscle twitching spasms, we can see weakness. And again, remember, we've talked a lot about our action potential, right? And it's all about those concentration gradients versus our electrochemical gradients. And if we have a significant change in those, those are going to alter the ability to have or to have too easily the action potential. And again, remember, if we have even more sodium than normal, outside the cell. Remember, sodium's a really high concentration outside the cell normally. Now we have even more that changes things quite significantly, right? Because our diffusion gradient is going to be even more powerful than normal. And so those are things we really want to think about. And one of the most important things with any kind of electrolyte abnormality is not to look at the lab in a vacuum, but we see our lab and we say, okay, are we in a mild state? Like, are we 148, right? We're three above kind of the normal. Or are we moving into the more severe, where we're moving over that kind of 157, 158 threshold, where typically we're going to agree that from a lab standpoint, we're moving into a more critical level. Now, we've established the mild to severe lab level. We've talked about some of the the symptoms we see the first question we ask is are we symptomatic or not and how severe are the symptoms are we showing mild moderate or severe symptoms and that ultimately affects our treatment the next thing we always want to ask ourselves as well as what is the underlying cause now admittedly the treatment for hypernatremia is quite simple in almost all situations it's increased free water now, the one example where it would be a little bit different is in diabetes insipidus, where 
we're going to typically use DDAVP. So we're going to use desmopressin. And this medication is critical because what it's going to do is retain every ounce of free water possible. And so because of that, that we will get a dilutional effect intravascularly, which will help us then enable our sodium to, to decrease over time. And typically you're going to see that a lot of times in more of our neuro ICU patient population. But that's the one situation where treatment's different. In almost all other situations, our goal, honestly, is to increase free water. And there's a few different methods people use to think about hypernatremia. And all of it typically revolves in general around water status. And we can also think of it, too, from a fluid standpoint in terms of what region or what area physiologically is controlling our fluid. So a really common reason we have hypernatremic patients in the ICU is honestly just inadequate free water intake. At an absolute minimum, you need one liter per day of free water. That's assuming you're not doing any unique physical exertion. You're not febrile. You're not tachypnic which again, many of our patients in the ICU are, and that dramatically actually increases our free water needs. But at an absolute minimum, we need one liter per day, and that's an absolute bare minimum. When we start to fall under those requirements, in, naturally we're going to have increasing sodium levels. And the reality is that's quite common in the ICU. You think about those patients that have a sudden respiratory decline, it's 10 a.m., they're intubated, sedated, put on a ventilator. How quickly do people start tube feeds? A lot of times, I know for us at my facility, our nutritionists tend to really be on the ball, but many times, sometimes it doesn't happen for 18 hours, 20 hours, not till the next day that they decide, hey, we're going to do tube feeds. And... At that point, we already have a pretty significant free water deficit because they might just be on some fentanyl and some propofol, maybe a little norepinephrine, but the free, the fluids intravascularly are not enough to meet this patient's demands. And they can very easily be in a free water deficit very quickly. You'll see patients regularly in the ICU who are encephalopathic. I know for our ICU in particular, we deal with a lot of patients who are getting ready for a liver transplant. And many of these patients are end-stage liver failure. And they often are encephalopathic, and they may have delirium on top of that, and they're confused. Some of them are very depressed, and taking in water is not a concern. And it can be hard as a nurse too, right? Because from a nursing standpoint, these patients often can be very challenging. And sometimes, honestly, you just feeding them is kind of the last thing on your mind when you're so busy as keeping up on how much water are they really taking in. But it adds up. And many of those patients in particular can often be on lactulose, right? We're giving them lactulose, which of course helps decrease the ammonia levels, but it also leads to significant water loss through the GI system which leads to a really common source of free water loss, and that's our GI system. And so th through diarrhea, 
use of specific medications like lactulose. We can be looking at things like an NG to LIS. If you have an NG to LIS, for some patients, you could actually have a pretty significant amount of fluid removed over 24 hours. You have a fistula. I've had some new fistulas that just had like dramatic output and we weren't feeding the patient. And you can actually have pretty significant water loss. You have patients who are vomiting. Again, vomiting has a uh, is a situation where you can lose significant amounts of water. But, of course, intravascularly, our sodium levels are pretty consistent. So we're starting to lose more and more free water and our sodium start to rise. And sometimes it's not just one thing, but it's sort of that death by a thousand paper cuts. And in the ICU, it really is a unique kind of this perfect cauldron of a lot of these different situations where you might have a delirious patient who's having diarrhea. They vomit once or twice. They're not wanting to take in water. And you put these situa- the, you know, these variables together and over two, three days, you can really easily end up with a sodium that's pushing 150, 155. And this is something that, again, it's one of the important traits, I think, of really good ICU nurses is to understand our electrolyte abnormalities because you can look at the clinical situation and speak to it, right? Like this is why really good nursing matters in the ICU. And I think that's why it's important to understand these electrolyte abnormalities because, you know, the doctors are doing the rounds in the morning and they say, man, like the sodium was 140, then it's 143, then it's 148, now it's 151. And they're like, what the heck? But then you could say, hey, like, we're on lactulose. We've been having diarrhea continuously for three days. The patient vomited the other day. They're delirious. They're not taking in water. We might be at a place where we just need an NG tube, and we need to start having free water flushes and feeding our patient. But these are things where you want to initiate it early on, and being able to look at the lab but then compare it to our clinical picture is so important to really being a good ICU nurse. And this is a a side note. I also think it's why it's really important to pay attention to your INOs. I was recently precepting a new nurse and they had over the course of the day used approximately 15, 16 saline flushes. And, you know, they didn't account for their saline flushes in the shift. And at the end of the day, I said, you know, like, dianos are pretty good, but we didn't account for our flushes. And they're like, well, they're just saline flushes. I was like, yeah, but that's 160 mils. And if every nurse says, hey, screw it, I'm not going to account for my saline flushes. Give a patient who's in the hospital for two weeks. We're looking at leaders. And if you have a nephrology patient and they're looking at, you know, they're on dialysis and they're doing fluid removal, like this makes a big difference in terms of what we do. If we have a hypo or hypernatremic patient, the fluid status matters. It really does. It really helps inform the treatment. And so that's one of the reasons why I've always been really big on accurate INOs to the best of my ability. And, you know, you get busy and you're not sure if the patient drank the whole cup of water or if they had just filled it up themselves. But the goal is always to do the best you can with your INOs. And this is why it matters because with hypernatremia, it's all about often looking at our fluid loss to our fluid input. So we've talked about inadequate free water intake. We've talked about GI 
water loss. Another reason is renal fluid loss. And so a really common reason is diuresis and specifically loop diuretics, so like furosemide. So Lasix is a common issue where we're going to lose significant amounts of free water. We lose potassium, but we have reabsorption of sodium. And so because of that, in certain patient populations, we can have pretty significant increases in sodium if we're doing really aggressive diuresis, especially if we're on flu- you know, f- uh, free water fluid restrictions. And so this is really important. Or you have your delirious patient, your confused patient, a failure to thrive patient that has beyond normal levels of poor free water intake and we're doing aggressive diuresis. This is a real concern with our sodium going up and up and up. Now this leads into a different type of osmotic diuresis, and that's specifically osmotic diuresis when we think about certain states like hyperglycemia. So severe hyperglycemia, we see this in like DKA presentation where the glucose levels are so significant intravascularly, we have fluid flowing into the intravascular space, right, to try to create some sort of equilibrium. And because of that, we have significant urination. So we're going to have a pretty significant free water loss. And so this is an osmotic diuresis. This can also be in our neuro ICU patient population where we possibly use mannitol to decrease cerebral edema. The concern is that can actually pretty significantly increase free water urine output again from a similar osmotic diuresis standpoint like we would have with hyperglycemia. Now, we also can look at it, though, in renal loss from a central perspective. And so that's like our diabetes insipidus. And so this specifically, this is often in our neuro ICU patient population. This is something where we see um, intracranial hemorrhage. We see trauma patients, a herniation brain tumors, meningitis, these can often lead to a situation in which we're having significant free water loss beyond a normal level, and it's specifically neurogenic. Now, with like diabetes insipidus, this largely has to do with desmopressin, and so often the treatment is specifically DDAVP. This will help us. It specifically causes a re- retention of free water, which will then be able to dilute intravascularly our sodium levels. And then, of course, outside of the kidneys, it's going to increase our urine concentration. Now, another thing that's kind of related to renal water loss is is called nephrogenic. So it's specifically related to our kidneys. And this can be from a wide range of conditions. To run through them quickly, we could be looking at something like lithium toxicity or lithium overdose, amphotericin, hypercalcemia. So we're talking about really high calcium levels in the blood. We can be talking about hypokalemia. We talked earlier about how when we have low sodium levels, actually giving potassium can help raise our sodium. In this situation, though, one of our concerns is is hypokalemia can actually exacerbate hypernatremia. 
We can also be looking at situations such as acute tubular necrosis, and we can also look at things like, um, we can be talking about like renal insufficiency, and these are issues related to our kidneys, of course, that will affect free water retention versus loss. Now, our fourth category specifically has to do with sodium. I'll put quotes around poisoning, but significant dramatic increases in the consumption of sodium. And so these would be kind of our hypertonic losses. And so if you could think about it, when we started this discussion, we were kind of talking about hypotonic issues, meaning just pure water issues in terms of free water. We've talked about isotonic issues, right? And now we can talk about a hypertonic issue in relation to sodium poisoning, which is incredibly uncommon. Um, but this is essentially your patient who decided to uh, go out on the ocean and got lost in the ocean and decided to drink the salt water continuously for a few days. We would have a situation where we could have potential sodium poisoning. Another situation which is a bit more applicable to the ICU would be a code situation where a patient had a significant amount of concentrated bicarb given. Uh, this could also be a patient, for example, that had overcorrection of hyponatremia with potentially concentrated bicarb to where they shot them up too quickly, which of course is a big concern, right, with that osmotic demyelination. But again, the final category is when we are increasing dramatically concentrated sodium levels into the patient. Uh, a category for this we could consider too would be a a neuro ICU patient where we're trying to decrease cerebral edema. And so because of that, we've placed a patient on 3% sodium. And the goal there, of course, is to decrease cellular swelling. But on occasion, maybe you have a sodium goal, maybe it's 150, maybe it's really aggressive and they're trying to push even higher than that. And, you know, you've given some 3% boluses, you keep the drip going, but somehow you accidentally overshoot. And in those situations, sometimes, again, we've gone a little too high, so we have to come back. And that would be an example of this, though a more controlled situation. So we talked about the one unique situation with DDAVP when we would correct for more of that central diabetes insipidus issue. In general, though, most of our corrective measures are largely increasing free water. Now, we talked about hyponatremia. We have a big concern with osmotic demyelination if we increased too quickly. Again, that six millimole per liter is kind of that magic number per 24 hours, though potentially up to eight in certain situations. Now, bringing sodium down is a little bit less of a concern, doing it a little bit too quickly. Research would suggest generally 10 to 12 milliequivalents per liter, millimoles per liter, you know, however we want to, whichever uh, lab value we would like to look at. Now, there's quite a bit of research out there. Some people saying that in a more acute situation, we can more acutely bring the sodium back down. There are reports of dialysis patients in particular where there have been dramatic swings in sodium with, with no ill effect on the patient. 
The argument in general is that the brain often takes up to 48 hours to really respond to the increase or decrease in sodium levels. And so a sudden, acute, less than 48-hour increase in sodium could be corrected more, more quickly than a patient who has had chronic hypernatremia. In that case, the, the bringing the sodium down, of course, we're going to look at how symptomatic the patient is. But in general, that situation, one might want to be a little more careful because we don't want to lead to an area where we have cerebral edema occurring because we've so dramatically in decreased the sodium level. Typically, the sodium, again, the goal is 10 to 12 millimoles per liter per 24 hours, and that is largely done by correction of the free water deficit. And so, again, there's a lot of free water calculators out there to do this calculation. Uh, many patients with hypernatremia, again, it's just simply free water if they can do PO intake. If a patient's on an NG2, typically you're going to see Q4 free water flushes changed. A lot of times 30 mils every four hours is your just standard free water flush. Um, often you're going to see an increase, whether it be to 50, 75, or 100 patients, which are still struggling to bring the sodium down. I've seen free water flushes up to 300 at times, so some pretty dramatic free water flushes to try to slowly bring our sodium down. I think when you're starting to see 200, 300 Every four hours, the big question to ask is, are we having some sort of fluid loss that we're potentially not accounting for properly in our charting? I think a big one to think about always is diarrhea, especially your patients that don't have rectal tubes where we're easily able to calculate our output. Sometimes you can have patients who are having massive bowel movements, you know, eight, nine times a day, and it's just not really quite noted in the charting. And so that's something we can start talking about. Okay, we're having significant fluid loss here. Either we need to figure out why the patient's having this diarrhea, or we need to say, okay, we need to account more appropriately with our free water intake. And again, it all comes back to high quality nursing, right? Using your head thinking through the whole picture. Well, this episode, again, I was hoping to keep it closer to 15 minutes. It ran a little bit longer, but hypernatremia is such a common issue in the ICU. I, I think it's worth thinking through in particular because I think nursing, good nursing, really can make a difference in this because you can connect the lab value to the whole clinical picture. Well, I appreciate everyone listening, and the plan for this week for me is I'm going to move into potassium, and so there's going to be an episode coming out this following week with an overview of potassium and then moving into potassium physiology. I also am going to continue a few shorter episodes on kind of follow-up after dis the discussion of post-operative hearts, and so there's going to be episodes coming out here in the near future on pulmonary artery catheters or swans. We're talking about temporary pacemakers. And then also do a little bit more of a deep dive into some of the common post-cardiothoracic surgery medications you're going to see in the ICU. Well, with that, thanks for listening.